Hey there, friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Foria Health Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sapala. For anyone joining in the conversation for the first time, firstly, welcome. But where have you been for the past 95 episodes? I'm only joking. Thank you for jumping on board. Secondly, a little bit of background about myself. I'm a qualified personal trainer and I'm currently studying a Bachelor of Health Science majoring in nutrition. I'm extremely passionate about holistic health, longevity, sustainability, movement and plant-based nutrition. Through this platform, I aim to add value to your life by educating and inspiring you on ways to create healthful decisions each and every day, decisions that add years to your life. My whole coaching philosophy and a big part of the whole podcast is not wanting to be a coach that is your quick fix. I want to be your only fix. In saying that, I'm super excited to bring you this episode, folks. I sat down with hematologist and founder of Plant-Based Health Professionals UK, Dr. Shireen Kassam. Shireen is a medical doctor specializing in hematology and the treatment of lymphoma in the UK. She's extremely passionate about holistic healthcare and the role that preventative medicine can play in disease prevalence. Dr. Kassam is an absolute wealth of knowledge who aims to shed light on the role that plant-based nutrition and lifestyle intervention can play in cancer prevention. She founded Plant-Based Health Professionals UK in 2017, which is a platform that highlights all of the incredible health professionals across the globe shedding light on lifestyle medicine. Alongside this, Shireen co-founded a sister organization called Plant-Based Health Online. This is a completely digital space in which all health professionals from around the globe work together to help battle our chronic disease pandemic by consulting with patients like a telehealth consult, addressing the areas in which us individuals can make modifications to lead a healthier, happier, longer life, all while supporting planetary health and the lives of our beloved animals. During today's episode, Shireen and I chat about our current global healthcare system and how that it is one of sick care due to the influx of preventable chronic diseases making up majority of our leading causes of death in developed countries. We also discuss the role that alcohol plays in cancer development as well as the current classifications from the World Health Organization of foods and lifestyle habits associated with cancer using their grading system. We discuss at length foods and lifestyle habits which have categorically been shown to reduce the risk of cancer development and some tips on how you can bulletproof your health. The opportunity to sit down with Shireen and pick her brain about lifestyle medicine was one that I will never forget. It was a real pinch me moment, one of which I'm extremely grateful for. As usual friends, the Euphoria Health Podcast is not intended to be medical advice and only advice of a general nature. Please consult your healthcare practitioner before making any changes to your lifestyle. Don't forget to let Shireen and I know that you're listening, friends, by screenshotting the cover of the podcast and tagging us in on your Instagram stories. That's all from me, folks. So put your headphones in, pour yourself a cup of tea, lace up your runners, and enjoy the next 60 minutes of Dr. Shireen Kassam's wisdom. Dr. Shireen Kassam, welcome to the Euphoria Health Podcast. Thank you. Amazing to be here. 
It's so good to have you on the podcast. I've been watching everything that you've been up to from afar for the past sort of few years, ever since I've got immersed in this plant-based realm. And it's super, super exciting, a real pinch me moment to have you on the show. So I can't wait to dive into all the hot topics today. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. Before we take this conversation down a big rabbit hole, I'd love to find out what life is like in the UK at the moment. We hear things from Australia all on the news about how the COVID situation is ebbing and flowing between daunting and and not so bad. Talk to us a little bit about what it's like firsthand for you. Yeah, I mean, it's impossible to keep up with the changing scenarios. I mean, as you know, we've opened up as a society, you know, vaccination program has gone really well, relatively speaking. Um, But, you know, we do continue to see um, in cases of COVID-19, the severe disease in our hospitals. Um, So it's really difficult to, to gauge. I mean, I guess on a personal level, I've got a way quite lightly with the whole um, pandemic situation and that my work has continued the same you know I carry on on the days that I go to King's College Hospital in London I carry on with my work I'm mainly within sort of um, cancer care and the haematology setting so that was not anything that could be left till after the pandemic so you know my clinical work carries on as is and um, yeah I didn't have the the same issues with isolation and not being able to associate with colleagues and, and, and friends in the same way as others may have had and you know on the days that I'm not at the hospital obviously not being able to have those social interactions has just meant that I've been able to get on with you know my work as a you know a plant-based advocate as well um, in, in real earnest. Well and I guess you know seeing this from afar and seeing how the, the media are portraying things is quite difficult to grasp the situation on the floor. So how were people's spirits over in the UK? You said that you weren't meant that you weren't affected too drastically, but how are the spirits of the general population? Is it are they sort of plodding along, going through the motions, or what's it like at this present time? I, I think it's so difficult to generalize because everyone's experience has been so personal and it's so difficult to comment on, you know, individual experience. You know, you know obviously some people have had it so tough. I, I see it from my point of view as looking after patients with cancer and, you know, being told you've got cancer during a pandemic and having chemotherapy. I mean, it's even more devastating than, than usual. And then, as I say, you know, there's people lucky enough um, like myself who live in the countryside, who've got green open space, um, you you know, who've not had to worry about, um, you know, um, not having access to open spaces. So I think it's truly been very difficult um, for, for a large proportion of people who've ended up, you know, becoming poorer, less food secure, money's been a problem. Um, so I, I think it's very hard. It is such a unique situation that no one could have planned for. And I feel like I've said this in almost every podcast I've done over the past year, but the the factor of the matter the fact of the matter is that we're in this situation and we really can't control a whole lot of things but we can control how we show up each and every day and what we decide to immerse ourselves in whether that's things that we're following on social media interactions that we're having in, having with people so I think if we can continue to spread some positivity and and have conversations like this one it will lift people's spirits up higher. 
Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, you know, that on the positive side, it's really brought communities together, you know, just on the plant based side, so many um, organisations are providing plant based meals, you know, we've got made in Hackney in London, who are giving out, you know, hundreds and thousands of plant based meals to those who are food insecure. And so, you know, on some level, it has brought out the good in humanity as well. Yeah, definitely. Now, Shireen, you touched on before your background, sort of, for the listeners at home that sort of didn't really understand what you were talking about before, would you be able to give us a little bit more of an in-depth breakdown of what your background is and, and the work that you do? Yeah, no, for sure. It's not terribly exciting when it comes to recounting my my upbringing and things. You know, I had a very conventional um, education and upbringing and, um, you know, went to medical school um, back in 1994, qualifying as a doctor in um, 2020. Um, And yeah, I've been working ever since within the public health system here in the UK, the National Health Service, um, you know, finally qualifying as a haematologist back in 2011. Um, And I work as a consultant um, doing um, you know hematology mainly looking after patients with lymphoma which is the type of cancer of the lymphatic system and also doing some laboratory work because it's a pathology specialty as well so I look down the microscope and interpret um, test results and ge- genetic results and those sort of things uh, as well all the aspects of diagnostics that go into making up a, a hematological diagnosis for an individual so um, but then more recently um, having become um, vegan back in 2013 mainly for animal justice reasons I sort of um, you know opened up this wealth of scientific literature that wasn't um, previously um, apparent to me about the power and potential of healthy plant-based diets to help prevent and you know in some cases reverse the chronic illnesses that we're seeing on a day-to-day basic basis in our healthcare system. And, you know, I, I took a long time educating myself. So probably between 2013 and 2017, got up to date with the literature, learning from all the great people that you will know of, you know, Neil Barnard and Dean Ornish and Brenda Davis and all the good and greats of the plant-based um, health professional world. And then kind of looked around me and thought, well, why is nobody look, uh, talking about this in the UK? You know, people must understand this um, on this side of the Atlantic as well I can't be the only person so finally got up the courage to sort of get out there and start talking about um, plant-based diets sort of from a health perspective as a kind of form of advocacy to get us really to be considering our diet in a more compassionate and kind way for ourselves and of course the animals Um, you know started doing talks at VegFest and suddenly came across people who had had a similar um, you know awakening (laughs) as me and we um, launched um, the first plant-based nutrition conference for healthcare professionals back in March 2018 which sort of brought together over 200 people it was a sellout within sort of weeks of launching um, and realized there was an appetite for this amongst the healthcare professional community and that led to me um, founding and now being director of a community interest company called Plant-Based Health Professionals UK so sort of formally launched in 2018 um, and yeah hopefully we're you know slowly going from strength to strength we've got a we've got a long catch-up um, to do because we sort of model ourselves on the physicians committee in um, the US and they started back in 1985 so we're trying to press the acceleration pedal and get going as quickly as possible um, and our late, latest venture which is really exciting for us is the launch of plant-based health online which is an actually a healthcare service and um, a lifestyle medicine healthcare service which incorporates plant-based nutrition as one of the aspects of the care it provides it's an online platform um, run by
by um, my co-founder, Dr. Laura Freeman, who's the medical director and lifestyle medicine physician and general practitioner. And we're able to offer um, patients, clients, you know, the public consultations, which incorporate um, lifestyle medicine approaches, plant-based nutrition and conventional sort of, you know, Western medicine all in one um, here in the UK and beyond if there are people who want to access that. Wow, I'm blown away. There is so much to unpack in your incredible journey. I I want to highlight a specific topic that you touched on before, and that's the nutrition sort of realm for doctors. And in conversations with doctors themselves and looking around, you there's not a lot of nutrition education for doctors within the course because of the general nature that they have to get through a plethora of, of different evidence to to be able to practice what intrigued you about the nutrition side of things and educating other health professionals about the importance of good nutrition for prevention yeah I mean it started off just purely looking from my own point of view you know when you decide to adopt a 100% plant-based diet you want to know how to do it properly and understand you know the pros and cons and all the rest so I I, um, started looking into it just for myself, you know, watching the documentaries, Walks Over Knives and reading the books and all, all the rest. Um, and then realized that it was also being used in clinical practice in various places around the world to improve outcomes for patients. And, you know, we don't have to have a narrow focus in healthcare. We can try and use all the um, tools available to us. And I think, you know, we, we know that um, lifestyle interventions are so powerful um, that they should really be incorporated into every aspect of healthcare, be it health promotion or treatment of chronic illness, um, really to give um, people, citizens, a, a better quality of life because, you know, we're in a situation where, yeah, we've made great progress in living longer, but actually we're living longer in ill health in the UK. We spend an average of 12 years in ill health. And there's so many factors associated with that. But, you know, that ill health is predominantly caused by um, preventable diseases like cardiovascular disease and cancer and um, dementia more and more as well. So, you know, there's a real ability to make an impact as a doctor if we're able to incorporate all those tools into what we can offer our patients, which of course will always inevitably use some med- you know, medications and all the traditional teachings that we're, we're, we're given in medical school. Yeah, this the Western medical realm is absolutely incredible. And the things that we've been able to, you know, treat, prevent, eradicate from society with Western medicine is just astronomical. But I love how the conversation is starting to shift towards an integrative approach with good nutrition and good lifestyle habits as a prevention forefront. But when we do get struck with disease, we've got the tools to be able to treat the cause right there, uh, treat the disease, sorry, and the prevention is treating the cause. So I, I love the way we're heading. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And the thing is, in my specialty, you know, lymphoma, it's not really a preventable illness. So I can't, you know, say I'm going to prevent all the diseases I see in clinical practice. But what I do see is that when my patients are diagnosed, they have other illnesses like cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, all things that require additional medications that, you know, hamper um, the way I can treat their lymphoma, you know, um, it makes it more difficult for them to tolerate treatment and then, you know, increases the side effects of treatment and the long term outcome. So, you know, regardless of specialty, whether you can prevent an illness or not, you can really make an impact um, for an individual um, by addressing um, healthy lifestyle habits. 
Yeah, so, so true. Now, Shireen, you touched on it before that you specialize in the treatment of lymphoma. For people at home that aren't aware of what lymphoma is or what cancer is, could you define that for us at home before we take the conversation a bit further? Yeah, so, I mean, cancer in general is a process where um, an individual cell develops an abnormality, usually a sort of mutation or a genetic abnormality or or a damage to its DNA, um, and then sort of grows in an unregulated way, um, which it shouldn't, you know, damaged cells should be discarded by the body, but somehow it develops a growth advantage, you know, stimulated by growth factors and um, other molecules to just start growing, dividing, and eventually becomes, you know, a clinically apparent problem like a breast lump or, you know, it starts bleeding from the back passage, for example. So it then becomes clinically apparent. And then once it sort of grows beyond its own tissue structures, it can go out outside that particular organ into other um, body organs, which is called metastasis. So that whole process I've described, though, takes, you know, decades to happen. Um, And, you know, all the time we're potentially generating cells that could be cancerous, but we've got an immune system that keeps it in check, either gets rid of it or keeps it at such a low level that it never becomes apparent. And in that same way, you know, lymphoma is... um, arises from the lymphatic system which is part of our immune system you know a lymphatic cell a lymphocyte a plasma cell you know something becomes abnormal it develops a growth advantage and usually the sign of an abnormality going out of control is that you get enlarged lymph glands either in the neck or under the arm or or in the groin that is then clinically apparent and takes you to the doctor and then we do a biopsy and diagnose the condition Yeah, it's so interesting. I really wanted to highlight that because we hear about, you know, a lot of cancer that it's more prevalent in our days, but actually defining it and you touched on it before that it does, it develops over decades and decades of, you know, lifestyle habits and and things that we do and we see in our everyday life. So I guess highlighting that element gives us hope or an insight that there might be preventative strategies towards some sort of cancers obviously genetics plays a really big role but genetics genetics loads the gun and lifestyle pulls the trigger as um a great plant-based professional says yeah absolutely and i think you know at, at most you know our cancer risk um is driven 10% by genetics and 90% um, by other factors. But those other factors are so vast and we're still understanding, you know, all the detail of it. But, um, you know, most international organisations, cancer organisations state that four out of 10 of our cancers are preventable through adopting healthy lifestyle behaviours and habits. And that's huge, you know, four out of 10, 40%. um, And obviously that relates more to sort of common cancers like um, breast cancer, prostate cancer and colorectal cancer. And of course, lung cancer, we've understood for a while, you know, 85% would be prevented if um, tobacco smoking was outlawed. Um, But um, yeah, so, so, and and then the rest, you know, it is a combination of genetics, lifestyle, environmental exposure. And and again, you know, we live in such a different world to 50 years ago in terms of what we're exposed through in our environments that it's going to take a while to unpick it all. Yeah, definitely. I'm really interested to see what intrigued you about this realm of medicine. Well, just that I I think we need to be concentrating on health promotion. You know, like everyone says, we are in a sick care system. And that's what I see at the sort of hospital level, that you're seeing the end stages of something that 
could potentially have been prevented if we had a system that really promotes health and well-being. And that, that really is a complex issue because it also takes on board socioeconomic determinants of health, which um, are also so powerful. You know, just the fact in the UK, you can live 10 years longer or shorter based on your postcode because you are, in, you know, you have different socioeconomic experiences. It's just crazy, isn't it? Um, but, you know, that's, that is one aspect of prevention, but so is making healthy lifestyle habits accessible. And again, I'm sorry, I only know the UK figures really um, at my fingertips, but we only spend 5% of the billions that we spend on healthcare on prevention. And that will include things like vaccines and mammograms and, and all the rest. So, you know, what, what we actually put budget wise into providing healthy food, um, open spaces, you know, avoiding alcohol and um, smoking um, and providing people with that support is, is minuscule. And then we wonder why we can't cope with the um, the you know the large volumes of um, chronic illnesses that we see in the hospitals and in primary care so you know I just think on a on a core level we can make such a big difference to people's experience and how they live and their health and vitality by addressing the root cause. I'm blown away by that figure so correct me if I'm wrong 95% of the funding within the UK goes to treating already diagnosed chronic disease. Absolutely. We spend 5% on, on prevention. Wow. That is, that is just, that figure has blown me away. I'm dumbfounded at, you know, we, within this community, we know the role that prevention and there's a lot of research out there to show a correlation between prevention and, and what we can do with our lifestyle and, and environmental exposures and whatnot to be able to prevent chronic disease. But it's going to come to a tipping point where we suddenly don't have enough funding to be able to focus anything on prevention. It's all going to be treating healthcare. So we need to intervene at some stage. Absolutely. I think we've already reached that tipping point. And I think, you know, COVID-19, if it's taught us anything, is the vulnerability of our population in terms of the chronic ill health, you know, um, in the UK and US, you know, the vast majority of people that have had the worst outcomes with COVID-19 have had underlying chronic um, diseases you know that's never never always never 100% figure um, of being true but clearly in, in the first wave 90% or more of people who died in the UK had at least one underlying chronic health condition so you know not only are we suffering ill health we're then vastly um, you know poorly resilient to these pandemic viruses um, so you know the the aspect of health promotion really needs to be given um, uh, you know daylight and finances the trouble is we very much talk about individual choices and behaviors and leave it to the individual but really that's not going to work unless we have a systematic change in the environment and the education and the media and the advertising and, and you know in in what we showcase in our um, uh, public institutions like schools and hospitals. Um, so it really needs an overhaul, which is really a slow process. Definitely. And I recorded a podcast with Simon Hill, who you might be familiar with his work yesterday, in fact, and we were having a conversation regarding the consumer's choice and how we only have a, a little bit of control about the things that we can change in regards to prevention. A lot of the stuff is far greater than that in regards to legislation and, and media and marketing. So it's a really big thing to tackle. 
it, it is, and we need people tackling it at all aspects of that chain that um, support people to make a better choice for themselves. Um, you know, we've started on the grassroots level by, you know, going for core education, by teaching health professionals, teaching, you know, citizens who are interested in changing their diet and how to do it healthily because you know we know that you could be plant-based and still remain pretty unhealthy in your food choices or you can be plant-based and have a whole food plant-based healthy diet and so it's sort of understanding those nuances but you know we need to get higher up that um, food chain as it were we need to start um, being able to influence policy makers and so we're trying to align with you know like-minded um, organizations the health and climate organizations and just try and push this healthy eating message out there I mean I think there's no argument now that as a society we have to transition to a plant-based food system and you know we just need to cut through the noise and get there faster and then make these choices much more accessible to individuals you know we've actually had quite a progressive um, national food strategy published in the UK you know I was pleasantly surprised I mean of course it doesn't go far enough but you know it clearly laid out the problem um, you know in no uncertain terms and you know it's advocating for for doctors to be prescribing fruits and vegetables it um, advocating for um, more accessible healthy foods that we we make these foods accessible and rather than I mean I'm not sure it went as far as saying this but you know rather than subsidizing meat and dairy foods that we really um, are unnecessary in the diet that we promote foods that are sustaining our health like fruits and vegetables whole grains beans nuts and seeds and that on a community level we teach people how to do this and um, go back to sort of cooking skills um, and we vastly reduce our meat consumption it's recommended a 30 percent reduction in meat consumption. Wow, that's a, a small step, but a big step at the exact same time, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the things I was disappointed in was it really didn't tackle the issue of dairy, which remains um, very embedded in um, sort of our school system, you know, in our guidelines, you know, consuming dairy daily for calcium and all that. So it really didn't address that, despite the fact that it acknowledged that ruminant animals were are a major contributor to climate change and the fact that you know um, people of color like myself are highly likely to be lactose intolerant and you know we could make um, um, uh, you know plant-based milks which are fortified you know soya milks for example which would be accessible to a vast majority of the population unless you're allergic of course but would be acceptable alternative and much better for environment and health so there were aspects it, it didn't cover for probably obvious reasons and the big dairy lobby and um, also there was quite a lot of emphasis on um, you know the need for technological advances you know the cultured meat and you know all the plant-based alternatives and yeah they have a role but it's not like we have to wait for that technology we have the solutions in our hands you know we can all just start producing and eating more beans and lentils and pulses etc but I think the British diet is just not used to or the British citizen is not really used to eating lots of beans and lentils it's not really part of all the traditional meals but we just need to change that don't we yeah definitely it's one step in the right direction the traditional Australian diet is very similar to the traditional British diet in regards that it's very um, animal products dominant on the planet. And I see, particularly within my circle, there's a lot more conversations regarding the importance of fruits and vegetables and increasing your fiber intake, which is a small percentage of the pie, but it's exciting for 
someone like myself who's advocating this at a very minuscule level to hear these conversations within the supermarket, see people picking up the products, reading the actual ingredients list, like it, it's it's one step forward in the right direction. And I think there's no better time than the present to do something like that. Agreed. I'm just uh, hoping that our government take on board the recommendations. It's not all doom and gloom, though. As consumers, we do vote with our dollar. So if a more, more, more and more people are starting to trend towards this way of living or these lifestyle approaches, then it is going to go noticed by government bodies and then legislations do get created upon that. And it is a slow process, but, you know, it's not about doing these things overnight. It's about working towards these bigger pictures and, and just doing the best you can with the knowledge and resources that you have. Yeah, agreed. And here in the UK, some supermarkets have, you know, like cooperative supermarkets have said their plant-based options are going to be similarly priced to the meat-based options. Some of the plant-based milks, the, the supermarket-owned brands have really come down in price, so they're, you know, much more affordable. So, yeah, I think um, we can make um, those better choices as consumers to drive that change. Definitely. Now, Shireen, I'm very intrigued to see what you're doing on a daily basis and the conversations that you're having with your patients on a daily basis, if you could give us an insight into that. Yeah, so it really varies, you know, depending on the patient, the situation, you know, so in my clinical practice, I'm obviously seeing people with new diagnosis of lymphoma, which is the cancer of the lymphatic system. Uh, as I've said, you know, some people need immediate treatment, other people may not need treatment straight away, and you wait till a bit later down in the disease course to offer some treatments. Um, so it really depends, you know, the people that need treatment straight away, you're going in there with loads of information, they need chemotherapy, this is what the side effects are, this is what's going to happen, it's sort of pretty life changing on so many levels. Um, and then, it, you know, it becomes hard to start saying, oh, and you must eat lots of fruits and vegetables. But having said that, everyone asks, you know, um, everyone wants to know, what can I do, you know, because it's such an obvious question to ask, you know, what can I do? What shall I eat? What about supplements, you know, all that. So there always is the chance to have that opening conversation conversation, plant the seed, you know, give them the resources. And that's partly why we've created so many resources on Plant-Based Health Professionals UK. So we make it easier for healthcare professionals to just say, well, you can look on this website, here you go, download this information sheet, it'll get you started, you know. And, and I'm lucky because actually the cancer prevention guidelines and the cancer sort of, you know, if you've had cancer, um, all the guidelines see, say eat a predominantly plant-based diet, you know, so it's right there front and centre. Um, but, you know, as we know, it's it's not just telling people what to do. They need the support in the community with the peer group around them to, to, to make them help them make these sustainable changes. So, you know, it's a bit more of a longer term plan or, or conversation. So, you know, I get to see them during chemotherapy and then afterwards and sort of afterwards is probably the, the right time to have this bigger conversation. Because again, you know, if you're lucky enough to be able to tell somebody they're in remission, they want to know, well, what can I do now? And then, you know, you, ha you have that conversation um, again. And, you know, in this healthcare system that I'm in, that's, a, that's about the most I can um, do on a practical um, level. You know, our patients only get to see a dietitian if 
they are underweight, you know, losing weight, malnourished in the kind of conventional sense, um, uh, because we don't have the capacity to for everyone to see a dietitian, whereas that would be the ideal. Um, and then, you know, you offer them resources, community cooking. We, we do have great cancer support groups here, and they are doing their best to promote healthy lifestyles uh, as well. So that's kind of what I'm able to do in the NHS. And then obviously outside of the NHS plant-based health online, we've created to be able to give people an extra option um, to you know come and meet a lifestyle medicine physician and support them through the journey and um, Dr Laura Freeman is um, starting or has started in fact we've teamed up with um, Chartwell Cancer Charity um, that has um, supported us to deliver some cancer survivorship programs um, in group sessions so shared medical appointments are the way forward now for lifestyle medicine you know a group of similar patients um, more recently we did a breast cancer survivor group and teaching them how to adopt healthy lifestyle behaviors they get the peer support and they get to hear um, expert advice from our physicians and dietitians nutritionists so we're trying to get that sort of all embedded but we need the sort of NHS and the um, private sector which is promoting the lifestyle aspects to really um, come together and join forces. It's incredible that there is so many resources that you and the team at plant-based health professionals have created for people that are going through this catastrophic stage in their life. And I guess that when you're having conversations with, with patients, they're at their most vulnerable. They're at this point where they're doing everything they possibly can, or you'd like to think they're doing everything they possibly can to get back to good health. And as a society, it's, it's almost, it's sad to see that it takes ill health for us to realize what we had, but it's also an great point for education and a really exciting time to be able to educate and inspire people on these benefits which has a big follow-on effect so I tip my hat off to you guys so well done thank you and having these conversations with people when they're at their most vulnerable time it's exciting to see that they're intrigued and what they can do further Prior to this, if you're having any conversations with people for follow-up appointments or early sort of detection appointments, do people understand or question the role that nutrition can play at that stage? Or is it, again, like we spoke about, waiting until the remission stage? I think it's highly variable and it really depends on the patient's ability to be able to take on new information and ideas, you know, which is very dependent on their own situation, because we see, you know, our, our hospital, there's um, such a diverse group of people that access our healthcare, different um, backgrounds, educational abilities, um, financial and also ethnicities. So we have quite a poor community who's food insecure, who's um, you know, more worried about how they're going to pay their bills. And we've got more wealthy people who are you know, able to make lifestyle changes much more easily. So you really do have to have a person-centered approach um, you know, and deal with the most important um, aspect for that patient at that time it doesn't mean you can't try and address you know healthy lifestyle habits but you know for somebody who hasn't got a job who's literally sofa surfing and I do have patients like that you know their ability to you know go and buy healthy food and cook is, is just not there so I think it really does need to be a person-centered approach there's no doubt that everyone's interested in improving their health um, and you just have to find those little aspects that you can talk about that can impact um, them and it's relevant to their situation and their families at that moment incredible and that goes back to the 
holistic healthcare service that, that you guys are providing and it's a very much holistic approach and and not so much a reductionist approach you're taking on the whole person and treating the whole person which is something that I'm extremely passionate about as well now Shireen I'd love to take a little bit of a 180 and talk a little bit about the specifics of nutrition and some consistent dietary patterns or foods that have been consistently shown to increase the risk of developing all forms of cancer? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, when it comes to cancer prevention, it's clear that the healthy diets are ones that are centered around the foods that have been associated with cancer prevention, which is fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts and seeds. Beyond that, you know, there's no other foods that have been associated with reducing your risk of cancer. And then the opposite can be said that the foods that are associated with either being neutral or increasing your risk of cancer are, you know, first and foremost, processed red meat. So any red meat that's gone uh, undergone sort of preparation techniques and addition of nitrates and nitrites, you know, your bacon, your ham, your sausages have been classified as a group one carcinogen. That means it directly causes cancer mainly related to colorectal cancer, but it certainly increases other common cancers like breast cancer, prostate cancer and pancreatic cancer um, and unprocessed red meat. Um, the, the data aren't as strong or the strength of evidence isn't so strong, but there is a signal that diets um, that emphasize even unprocessed red meats increase the risk of, of cancer. And that's reflected in the WHO guidelines um, that define it as a group 2A, a probable carcinogen. Um, and then, you know, then there's sort of those intermediate um, foods, as it were. So dairy and eggs, you know, they they have a bit of a neutral effect on, on cancer. It depends on specific situations. Dairy, it's clear that it increases the risk of prostate cancer, for example. But on the counter side, it reduces the risk of colorectal cancer. Um, and the only reason for that is the calcium content so you know you could flip that around and say well if you get healthy sources of calcium from your beans and greens and that that's probably better for you because of the health promoting effect of those foods um, and there is a small signal that um, swapping out dairy milk for soya milk um, for example can significantly reduce your risk of breast cancer so I sort of with those foods I, I sort of say well you can make better choices you can really swap them out for health promoting um, foods but you know if you were going to rank them in order it's red and processed meat that's definitely in the bad category and in inverted commas and then there's sort of some neutral foods that you know probably don't significantly affect and then there are the healthy plant foods that we know that really do contribute to reducing the risk of cancer and I always like to mention alcohol it's not you know a officially a food as it were but you know it causes cancer it causes about five to six percent of cancers globally um and you know i think we just need to be honest with that information um obviously people make choices but i think you know suggesting that there are benefits of small amounts of alcohol is is no longer true um and we should sort of put it you know it is in the same category as processed red meat of course you know a group one carcinogen it's so interesting here, our Australian lifestyle and very similar over in the UK, alcohol plays such an important part. Listening to a podcast the other day regarding the social implications of alcohol and if they can be incorporated as a part of a healthy routine from a social um, mental health point of view. And 
I was alarmed to hear the Australian statistics of what the recommended daily intake for alcohol, and don't quote me on this, this is just for re- reciting the podcast, it was two glasses of alcohol per night, like two standard drinks per night. And I was like, whoa, that seems way too much as to be a actual guideline that's recommended. Absolutely. We should we should be clear and black and white about uh, group one carcinogens, shouldn't we? I mean, there is no safe limit of alcohol to drink for alcohol um, for cancer prevention. I'll say that again. There is no safe limit of alcohol to consume for cancer prevention. That is a fact. That's what the American um, Society of Cancer um, says. And um you know, so that's clear, we have to be clear on that. So then having limits of what's acceptable just seems a nonsense to me. I think, yeah, the less you drink, the better. And that's the same with processed red meat. You know, there is no safe limit of red meat that is not associated with increased risk of chronic illness. So the safest limit is zero grams a day of red meat. And then what you choose to have is then a personal choice, but you should be, we should be arming people with the evidence. And, you know, when I was preparing for some talks earlier this year, you know, you look at these surveys that the World Cancer Research Fund has um, put out, there's been a recent one in the US and, the, and one in the UK, and you ask people what they understand about the implications of sort of lifestyle habits and cancer, less than 50% are aware that, you know, foods like processed red meat or alcohol are actually known to cause cancer so you know we've got a major problem with the information we're putting out there and then the way we produce guidelines that suggest it's okay to do this I mean it's not okay you can have a choice um, but it's no different from tobacco smoking um, and you know we have to acknowledge that really it is only the uh, money that it's generating and the influence of the industry that even um, that, that means that these products are even available to us. Yeah, it's so scary to think that there's this plethora of evidence out there with alarming repercussions, but as as the general population are not having as much access to this information as what we would have liked, and you almost have to hop, skip and jump to get access to this, which is, which is a concern in itself. Um, yes and no. I mean, I think access to information has never been so easy, has it? But I think, you know, as you say, there's quite a lot of misinformation and different ways of interpreting the same information. And as humans, you know, we're, we're, we're happy to hear messages that support our own habits, don't we? So we sort of, you know, home towards those guidelines that say two a day is fine, you know, and you go, well, I, I stick with the guidelines. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. Now, if we're zooming in on a plant-based diet, you highlighted all the characteristics before, whole grains, nuts, seeds, legumes, fruits and vegetables. I'd love to highlight some nutrients of concern for people that are looking towards shifting towards a more plant-predominant lifestyle. And what are those things and food sources that we can, you know, get these things in? Yeah, sure. I mean, I I don't like that term nutrients of concern, but I think, you know, nutrients that you need to make sure you're getting enough of on any diet um, are the same. It's just you source them in a different way if you become 100% plant based. And obviously, the number one nutrient that your audience will know about is vitamin B12. It's not present in plants and um, or animal foods, you know, as a direct source, obviously, we uh, consume it indirectly from animal sources in most common diet patterns. So uh, as a 
uh, vegan or 100% plant-based eater, you need a reliable regular source of vitamin B12. And for me, that's just a regular supplement. Um, you can take it daily um, or you can have a higher dose once or twice a week. So, you know, just set your uh, uh, phone alarm and remember to take, take it. Um, and then, you know, vitamin D, um, all diet patterns, you need to remember to get be getting enough vitamin D, you know, obviously, we're in situations depending on where you are in the world where you may not be having enough sun exposure, which is the best way to get vitamin D. So um, supplementing here in the UK, we're asked to supplement all citizens are asked to supplement between October and March. And the number of people I tell this to who don't even realize that that's the norm is quite staggering, really. So vitamin D, make sure you're getting enough. And I, I don't think there's any harm in now and again getting those levels measured in the blood it's useful to know where you're at and be able to gauge um you know that that you're you're adequate um and then um other nutrients that we always talk about in a plant-based diet is iodine it's one of the most common micronutrient deficiencies globally so again not a problem specific to a plant-based diet but um, we all need to know where we're getting iodine from. Um, obviously, on an omnivorous diet, you're getting it as a byproduct of dairy uh, farming. Um, so on a plant-based diet, it will naturally be less. And depending on the soil um, where your food is grown, there may or may not be um, iodine-rich soils. So um, I take it as a supplement. You can have it in, um, you know, uh, your, your iodine through consumption of sea vegetables or some countries iodize their salt so just know where you're getting it from basically um, and then there's some special groups of individuals not special groups but special times in one's life pregnancy lactation where vegan diet it's recommended by most authorities to take a supplement of DHA and EPA um, which is a long chain omega-3 fatty acids that we generally have less of because um, we don't consume fish you you can obviously the fish get it from microalgae and plankton um, so we can get it from algal supplements so algae oil and we know that the we know from studies that consuming it as a um, algal source elevates the levels in the blood to the same extent as fish consumption um, and you know the jury's out as to whether um, we should be seeking out an algae source of DHA EPA throughout a, a vegan's life as it were but that's a topic of debate so I think those are the main things you know obviously people get concerned about iron but again iron is a another nutrient that is a global problem especially in younger uh, women, menstruating women. So whichever diet pattern on you're on, you need to get a healthy source of iron for plant eaters. You know, it's greens and beans and lots of other foods and nuts and seeds and things. And, um, you know, you just need to make sure you're consuming it in a way that will support the absorption of iron. So, you know, having it with a bit of vitamin C, um, which is not really challenging, given that most of us eat our vegan meals with maybe, you know, red peppers or broccoli or, you know, a splash of uh, lemon um, is making sure you don't drink tea and coffee an hour either side of your meal because the tannins and, and the polyphenols sort of inhibit the absorption of iron. And if you're really finding it difficult to get enough, think about iron cast cookware and Iron deficiency is so common at certain stages of female life that actually many of us need to supplement now and again. And I think that's fine. I think, you know, if you need to supplement, then do. If you're actually iron deficient, you're not going to make it up necessarily just by increasing it in the, the diet. So take a short course of supplements, get your iron stores up. Um, yeah. Have I forgotten any nutrients that people ask you about? <laughs> no, I think they're the main ones that I was sort of alluding to. And it may sound alarming to some people to think this is a whole lot of boxes to tick but majority of these things you're going to be getting through an appropriate planned diet 
anyway, regardless of the other supplementation things that you need to add in. But a lot of the other nutrients that you need to survive, you're going to be getting on an appropriate planned diet anyway. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it annoys me because, you know, clearly the typical Australian and British diet is highly lacking in a vast number of um, uh, crucial nutrients. You know, we know that we're not eating enough potassium and magnesium and fiber and all those other things. And we don't talk about those as nutrients of concern on an omnivorous diet, do we? So I think whichever diet pattern you've chosen to consume, you need to understand where you're getting your nutrients and actually it's pretty easy on a plant-based diet because if you're concentrating your diet on the four main food groups that we've now recited several times fruits vegetables whole grains and legumes so beans pulses chickpeas etc on an equal basis you know not in every meal but you know equally emphasizing all those you're going to you're going to easily meet your requirements and then obviously have a portion of nuts and seeds every day. If you're not allergic to nuts, you know, it's going to give you um, a great extra boost of nutrients. We know they're heart healthy and good source of fats, etc. cetera. Um, and, and that's it. Take your vitamin B12. If you don't get the sun, take your vitamin D and, and you're done. Um, and, and yeah, everyone might need tweaks, but um, that's the basis of it. And it, and it doesn't have to be difficult. Yeah, definitely. It's it's funny. You you touched on it before. As soon as we start to make modifications, everyone has all these questions in. But as soon but before you you're even concerned about nutrition conversation, no one is really planning their diets appropriately. And when you start to take the the step towards it, everyone's suddenly got these questions. So I think, you know, seeking out that advice, educating yourself and armoring yourself with the knowledge to appropriate plan whatever appropriately plan whatever diet that you're looking to consume with a higher intake of of plant predominant foods i think that you can't go wrong from a, a disease prevention point of view agreed and i think the biggest problems in the uk and australia um, is the fact that we're eating a rather a lot of ultra processed foods so the last time i checked in australia it's about 30 to 35 percent of foods as uh, are sort of from the discretionary section of your food plate and for us in the uk sadly more than 50 percent of our calories are coming from ultra processed foods so a lot of the issues around improving diet quality come back to removing or minimizing processed foods in the diet and getting back to cooking from scratch using whole ingredients um, and you know using the healthy whole ingredients to make meals that are, are nutritious um, and tasty I mean there's so much abundance my variety in the diet has increased so much since becoming vegan um, you know and I think you know we forget that there's what over 50,000 edible plants on this planet you know we just we do need to concentrate it concentrate on having a varied diet along with um, you know eating those main food groups. Definitely. And I think they those percentages may have risen here in Australia as of recently, which is quite alarming. And I, I hear about this a lot and speak about this a lot in my line of work as a personal trainer regarding nutrition. And I don't think as a society we're there yet to be having specific nutritional conversations regarding what vitamins or what diet is better than the other at, as a basis, we just need to be consuming more whole foods, you know, more plant foods. And then we can start to look into what dietary pattern has been shown to be better than one another. But as a forefront, we just need to start incorporating more whole foods. Agreed. Now, Shireen, I'm being overwhelmed by the amount of knowledge that you have and watching everything that you have been putting out there. It's incredible. I'd love to know about what 
your main message is and why you do the work that you do. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for the kind words. Well, the main message is that, you know, we really can take back control of our health to such an enormous degree. Um, and there is such power in adopting healthy lifestyle behaviours. Um, I've decided to focus in on plant-based diet just because I think, you know, it's so much more acceptable to pay people to say, yes, I know we have to exercise and sleep well and avoid tobacco, but it's still so controversial, um, you know, talking about plant-based diets as the predominant way of promoting health. And that was the gap in the kind of education market, as it were, in the UK. So I focus in on supporting people to make healthy plant-based choices um, because of the co-benefits for all our major crises. You know, it's not just about personal health. It's about the health of our planet. It's about, um, you know, reversing the ecological crisis we're in. It's about, you know, making sure we have healthy soils that can sustain us and you know it's also about living a kinder more compassionate life on this planet because most of us certainly in the countries we live in can make that choice to have their diet as being one that's kind and compassionate to ourselves and to the animals amen now Shireen I know you might have been across these headlines yesterday but I really wanted to bring this up with you as well regarding the recent findings of the climate crisis that we're finding ourselves in and it's actually worse than we predicted. I'm interested to hear your findings about that and how you you took that sort of headline. Yeah I mean to be honest well it wasn't a surprise and i yet to make myself read the actual report other than the headlines because it's just too terrifying and it's just too depressing and the thing is we've been being warned for the best part of a decade haven't we and yet we continue um you know human activity on this earth continues to be such a destructive force on so many levels and you know it's it's just it's mind-blowingly upsetting and depressing to hear it again and again because the problem the, the thing is we actually have the ability to change the course this disastrous course we really really could change the way we are treating the planet and um our fellow humans and the other inhabitants that are, are on it it's just the question is that will we change fast enough and you know for me the message is clear this there are a handful of things we can do as individuals rather than wait for policy and government change and the top thing we can do is adopt a healthy plant-based diet you know the environmental impacts of our current food system are enormous and a major driver of the climate and ecological crisis and this is not disputed so the sooner we all, you know, accept the facts and move towards plant-centered diets, the better it will be for our own health and um, the health of the, the planet. So I'm going to continue preaching that message and hope that it gets out there loud and clear. So true. And I guess the beauty of this realm, whether you're inadvertently shifting towards a more plant predominant diet, plant predominant diet for health reasons or animal agricultural reasons or ethical reasons or environmental reasons, you're naturally ticking off all three boxes. So if that's not motivation in itself to shift towards that sort of dietary pattern, then I don't know what is. Agree. Now, Shireen, I have a few little rapid fire questions to end the podcast. Just to give me the first thing that comes to your mind when I ask you these questions. All right. Coffee or tea and how do you have it? 
coffee at the moment. I go through phases, coffee, um, just with a splash of soy milk, yeah, coffee granules. Love it. And what book would you recommend to everyone that you think they should have on their bookshelf, whether that's Mm -hmm. within a school environment, within a home environment? What's the number one book? Oh, gosh, that's a really tough one, isn't it? Um, I I just go back to the one that was a real influence to me when I started this journey, and that actually was Eat to Live by Joel Furman. Lovely. And if you could have one meal for the remainder of your life, what would it be? Oh, I think it would have to be dal and rice, you know, so the curry Indian lentils, dal and rice. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I've actually got that for dinner tonight. So how weird that you say that (laughs) Shireen, this has been an absolute pleasure. It was great to connect and this podcast has been a, a little while in the making, so I'm so great, so grateful we found the time to sit down and have this conversation. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks very much for having me on. Wow, there you have it, friends. What an incredible insight into this sophisticated topic of cancer and cancer prevention. There are multiple factors that contribute to the development of cancer, but it is extremely refreshing to hear that there are a set of lifestyle characteristics that are associated with a decreased risk. A diet where majority of calories come from fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts and seeds has been shown time and time again to reduce our risk of chronic disease. You know what that means, friends. Let's fill our plates with an abundance of plants. Dr. Kassam, thank you so much for shedding light on an important topic. You are a wealth of knowledge and I know my listeners would have gained so much out of today's conversation. Just before I wrap up today's episode, guys, Shireen runs a university course at the University of Winchester, completely centered around plant-based nutrition and the role that nutrition plays in disease prevention. For anyone that is interested in furthering their studies in this area, the link to the degree is in the show notes. This course can be accessed globally and is accredited by the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. Well, that brings another episode to a close. What an incredible individual Shireen is, and she's leading this movement towards better human health, planetary health, and preserving the lives of our animals. So I take my hat off to you. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes and hit subscribe to stay up to date with all things Euphoric Health. Have a fantastic week and I'll see you all next time on the Euphoria Health Podcast. Bye for now.